Welcome back to Disability Movement Etc. podcast that continues to chug along week after week. Although it seems more and more we still publish on Cryptine, even though we're trying to be bi-weekly. We're, we're taking it day by day. I'm Dr. Andrew Colombo Dagavito. I'm John Lepke. Academic acronyms not important. And on today's episode, John and I are going to be talking about working for yourself as a form of survival. The Paralympics in 2028 in LA, new information about that just came out. So we're going to talk about some of the sports that were included, as well as some of those that were not included. And then John, you again did our interview for this week. Do you want to introduce it for everybody? Absolutely. So I interviewed former Paralympian, former teammate, though not a club level, not going to pretend to have been cool enough to go to anything important, a former track athlete, multi-time Paralympian, and multi-time Paralympic medalist, Lisa Franks, who uh, is currently um, traveling south of the border, surfing after playing, after doing athletics, wheelchair basketball, and now working within surfing and mountain biking. Very cool. Yeah. I mean, surfing is the new Paralympic sport. We'll get into that later, but uh, yeah, pretty cool stuff. What else has been going on with you up in the frigid north? <laughs> well, it was about, I'm doing my Fahrenheit conversion in my head. It was about <laughs> minus 27 a week or two ago. And now it is 30 Fahrenheit. And now it is third. It's about 30 today. So we've nice. had some big spikes. and big swing. About, uh, yeah, a big swing that my spastic body is not <laughs> a giant fan of. Um, other than that. Have lots of journalism work on the go. I'm looking around. Uh, obviously, listeners can't see this, but I'm looking around at my office, knowing that there's a lot of cleaning to be done in my future. Yeah, the same. It always seems that when you catch up on some work stuff, the home stuff piles up, and when you do the home stuff, then the work stuff piles up. And I don't know. I don't know how people did it in the past. It always seems like at least my parents had things moderately under control most of the time but they didn't have, they uh, didn't have twitter to be on to complain about it yeah exactly i don't know adulting in the in the 21st century might be a little bit different from the 80s and 90s just a tad yeah well i do have one quick update before we get into our stuff and that is last week the book that brought you and I together, which was my first co-edited book with some colleagues here at the University of North Texas, uh, and the book is called Not Playing Around, Intersectional Identities, Media Representation, and the Power of Sport. It got a highly recommended rating from Choice Reviews, which I had no idea, I didn't even know they existed, but is apparently a part of the American Library Association, from what I can tell. Ah, cool. And... The cool thing was, is that I guess they rarely do reviews on more monograph type texts. They typically reserve it for textbooks and things like that. So it's a pretty cool thing to get at the end of last week, right? The beginning of February, which was a nice boost to the morale coming into this week. Anything exciting on your end, John? Not particularly that comes to mind, except that I, yeah. I will say that that project that brought us together, you know, it's it's a wonder what happens when public scholarship actually intersects with the people that it's affecting. And I hope that not just the 
you know, disability and sport and movement circles that you roll in, in, in academia, learn something about that. But I really think that's, that's a lesson that, that we can take not just into academia, but into the wider publishing sphere when it comes to disability. Uh, because there's, there's only so many types of one particular type of book before we need to, you know, expand out and, and bridge bridge the gap so to speak i always laugh when i say bridging the gap because bridging the gap here is like a uh, a program to get disabled people active so i say the phrase and then i'm like um that's actually something yet another relevancy <laughs> yeah giving them a uh a shout out to free free publicity for picking like well, one of I'm, the most I'm fairly, generic phrases of, to name your company <laughs> Yeah, I'm fairly certain that they wouldn't have money to sponsor us. So <laughs> oh, no, definitely not all free pro bono stuff. Um, yeah, it's very well. I'll have to say this: if you're listening, I hope you don't go buy the book <laughs> simply because it costs way too much money at this point for any non-scholarly person to buy it. Uh, I have to say that Why I did not have library. Yes. Request that your library buy it, and then you can borrow it and read it and as many times as you need, especially if you're affiliated with a university library system. And I'll have to preface this by saying I did not pick the price. I do not get the royalties you would think I would get from something like this. And, but I'm hoping, and I've been talking with the publisher, that given some good reviews and given the interest in the book, that they'll release a paperback version. Currently, it's only in hardback and ebook. But if you're so excited, you have to absolutely go out and buy it. There is a link in my bio pages and stuff like that. And I can put it in the show notes for 30% off the hardcover book if you buy it from the publisher. So, well, with that, with enough, what is, what's the word? Uh, Self-promo. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Self-promo. Let's... Let's get into the stuff we you're going to talk about for today. So you brought this one up. You wanted to talk about working for yourself as a form of survival. What do you yeah, want to talk about? I did. I'm, yeah, I th we're seeing a lot of conversation both inside of disability circles and, and and outside of them about you know what about the economy in in North America. About certainly, it's a topic of conversation in Canada as well as the U.S. and I would argue worldwide. A cost of living crisis in the UK also having big impacts on disabled people, and we're seeing these mass tech layoffs. Yeah, you know, we're seeing people lose their livelihoods, and uh, it brings me back to a topic of conversation that I've reported on a little bit for Insider and others, but have also been having as somebody who who is a sole proprietor, who is a freelancer, who who does consider himself, you know, running a business. Even if it's not, you know, if I'm the only staff member. And hey, that's uh, all right, man. The only problem is you don't have anybody to complain to, right? It's you, the boss. <laughs> yeah, I have my dogs. I call I call my corgi a papillon mix, my uh, my barky office manager. She keeps me in line. But and a lot of what I hear from disabled people is because those doors get slammed in our face that we often go and build careers for ourselves. We scratch and claw and and think through the lens of entrepreneurship. Not necessarily because we want to be entrepreneurs, although, you know, I got to the point where I did want to be one. 
but that we go, that we choose that because there is no other option. I was lucky, by the way, I'm going to name my privilege here. My first job was age 11. <laughs> I was a, I got honorariums to be a timekeeper at hockey games, which is the most Canadian thing uh, to ever do. And I think I did that in seventh grade, which means I was only a year from living here and I was timekeeping game that I did understand. But um, I had to quit that job because I had to stand for too long, which is the most John Lepke thing ever. Um, Maybe... Zamboni driver, I think, would have been the only possible job oh, more yeah. Canadian Can, than oh, that. Oh man, can you imagine? Can you imagine that grant that they'd have to write to, to get hand fantastic. controls on a Zamboni? That would be beautiful. I want to know if any listeners. One. Yeah, there you go. There's a wonderful video from Tom Scott, British YouTuber, of him driving one. But if uh, technical difficulties, but if uh, if very any listeners, machines. if any listeners have. Um, if any listeners have access to a hand-controlled Zamboni, I would love to hear about it. But, you know, it got me thinking we're seeing there's such a narrative around overwork and disability and capitalism and how difficult it can be on disabled bodies and minds. And I'm curious your thoughts, Andy, on how that intersects when running your own business becomes the choice by default for many of us. Whether that be, and I would even characterize here where it's not necessarily business, but where, you know, whether it be because of benefits and stuff, where volunteering becomes the only option by this very solo endeavor to try to continue to have some quality of life when it comes to your nine to five or whatever hours you work. Yeah, this is a tough topic, especially because I think we see all the trends that are occurring for. Everyone, not just disabled bodies, but, but people who may not consider themselves as a part of disabled community, but may still experience elements of ableism. And it, it just seems that no matter who you talk to, everybody is hustling extra hard because none of us can afford all the things that we need to, let alone would like to be able to afford. And I think for disabled folks, particularly those with disabilities that aren't, that you can't hide, right? That, you know, if you have a physical impairment and you're a wheelchair user, or if you have, um, you're visually impaired, right? I mean, these are things you, you can't really hide in your day-to-day -day life. I think can I, folks- Can I problematize that for you? Yeah, sure. I think work from home has really challenged that notion for Very certain so. people. I think like like if I take my own disability, like CP might be obvious in a Zoom call if I was a power chair user or if I had more vocal involvement than just the fact that I suck at vocal regulation. Thanks, theater, for giving me any skills at it at all. But yeah, I, there's a there's a thing in within my family and friends where you go like this, which is listeners can't see me, but I'm like miming, turning down a volume knob, which is, hey, John, you don't realize it, but you're literally screaming. You know that that it can be hidden within the Zoom frame in a way that's different from I can theoretically. I mean, I put crippled and creative in my Twitter bio, but theoretically. Somebody interviewing me wouldn't know that I had CP unless they know what they are looking for, which is always the case, right? People tend to suss each other out with their various disabilities. But um, yeah, 
But I totally not not to trip you up or not anything like totally take your point about it is certainly, um, you know, work is a space where I like to take interviewing, for example, choosing to disclose. Now I've been lucky in a way that 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 choice in a way it's a privilege to have that choice taken away from you. Uh, I know that's an odd way to frame it, but in some ways, like it's just not something it's just the cards that I'm dealing with to use the same. You know, I don't have, I'm I'm not autistic, so I don't have, for example, so I don't have to make the decision of, hey, do I disclose? Don't I disclose? Do I check this box on a form? Do I rely on whether this company is going to follow the ADA, et cetera? And chances are they're not going to, as we already know from <laughs> plenty of research. I mean, it's, you bring up a lot of points. I think the tackle the one about disclosing on jobs. Yeah, you're right. Technically. They're not supposed to discriminate against you, whatever you check on that box. Right. But there has been evidence to show that if there are two identical resumes and one of them has selected the dis- self-disclosed disability, whatever it might be, it dis- doesn't necessarily have. I don't think there's any difference between selecting that category and saying you're a wheelchair user, saying you have depression, or saying you have bipolar or anything like that. It's just if you have that box checked, it's like, it's a significant impact. I mean, it was, I don't remember the exact statistics, so I don't want to get them wrong, but the resume without disability checked got a callback, you know, a majority of the time, right? Maybe over half out of 10, out of 10. But in terms of the same resume, although with disability is checked, self-disclosing that, it was down somewhere in like the 20 to 30% callback rate. So nothing is obviously different between these two resumes beyond the disability thing. And, and of course, who knows? I don't know the exact companies that were doing this kind of not good dealing. I don't know any of that kind of stuff, but I know it's, it's an issue. It's something that is very salient. Yeah. I was asked at a, at a university interview for something. Um, it was for a sports camp, and I was asked how children feel about my wheelchair. And I was like, well, uh, I was training to be a teacher at the time. And I said, well, I probably wouldn't be in education if like, they ran away screaming. But there was that moment of like, well, uh, you know. I've only run over a few of them. Yeah, not, not getting that gig, right? And it's not like, you know, it's not like me being disabled was a surprise. You know, at the time I had wheelchair basketball, I hadn't done rugby yet. But, you know, I was pretty, because that was where my experience came from, coaching kids and stuff. And, uh, uh, however, you know, I don't think anybody would credit me with their success, thank goodness. But, yeah, I find, and the add-on to, you know, the topic of today's podcast about parasport is that I find... And it's a bit generational. I've done some reporting on this. There's some movement. I don't want to be like utterly pessimistic. Canadian Paralympic Committee has uh, something that's called the Game Plan Program that continues to build. There are innumerable connections, I would argue, for the USOPC. Mm-hmm. Uh, for disabled athletes, the visa program, I've interviewed people connected to the visa program where people get to cycle through um, different jobs and, and often land there after those cycles. Ryan Nicefinder being one of those, um, uh, who's a U.S. wheelchair basketball, men's wheelchair basketball athlete. Um, but historically, Paralymp- para-sport athletes that got to the elite level 
did not always have and still hardly have. I think the problem has gotten worse as training requirements have ramped up. Rarely leave the sport with any kind of runway um, outside of there's the RBC Olympians program where like they can bank off of their sport. We're not talking about they're afflicted by the same things as track athletes that are kind of done once they can no longer compete in the Diamond League, right? Because there's just there's there's no money and, and their transferable skills are less than are not understood. And yeah. I think parasport athletes bump into that, those disability barriers and those former athlete barriers. But the former athlete barriers that we hear traversed by, you know, like we see podcasts now and media shows and things like that. And there are, again, this is not turning into John Quotes as portfolio, but, you know, there are wheelchair basketball led podcasts that I've interviewed folks for. There are people doing this work, but it just it doesn't have the monetary you know, this isn't the JJ Reddick podcast. People aren't immediately walking into something and suddenly working at ESPN and doing these things. These are, you know, it's really difficult for these people to build careers after their sporting is done. And uh, it takes people out of the sport earlier and earlier because they, if you're not, you know, carding money, for example, in Canada, the money that if you're a carded athlete, you know, basically a Paralympic level athlete or slightly below. It's not very much money. It's certainly not. Historically, hasn't been enough to live on um, and certainly not live well. Uh, and so you see people realize earlier on than others might in other sports go, well, I'm not going to be able to live on this forever. I better, I'm going to have to do something else. And then there's pressure to continue training because, you know, sports only become more and more involved. And suddenly you're at a point where you're like, do I pick a living wage or do I pick playing sports? I think it's important to recognize that this isn't this isn't a problem only related disabled sport that plenty of non-disabled athletes also run into this issue. For every one player that makes it to a professional level and is paid a livable wage or accessible <laughs> excess livable wage, there are hundreds who never have and I I know that at least in a lot of American universities, they're trying to help the student athletes who are here with that mindset of, you know, like a percent of a percent of you will make it in the professional level of whatever sport you're playing. And that's, of course, only football, basketball, baseball, hockey. I mean, there are professional other professional leagues, but even athletes in those leagues still work other jobs and compete on the side because they have a love for their sport. And I think that's a, a running theme with a lot of things that we talk about is how sport really is an identity or the sport you play can become your identity. And it's really hard when that identity is taken away or you no longer have access to that or you have to make a really hard decision of, do I continue to play this sport that I love and and is so much a part of me or, or do I choose a career in which I have money to live because the the, the sport unfortunately Capitalism isn't going doesn't to provide stop. that yeah exactly yeah. we no matter how hard we fight it yeah we still live within this system so this may be a weird parallel to draw yeah. but I think I see this as somebody who is doing three years of an education degree and then realized that that was far too ableist of a 
Uh, Andy's laughing because he's a teacher, but uh, but be in the system to change the system sometimes, John. I see. There you go. Some of us just didn't didn't quite cut it. Uh, C'est moi. Mm, but I think I, I see parallels, and maybe this, like I said, maybe this is an odd parallel to draw, but I see parallels with people who transfer out of what you might call vocational programs, professional programs, whatever title your university has decided to Technical slap on. Technical programs, right? yeah. Yeah, the things that used to be colleges but have been subsumed by academia because the master's is the new bachelor's and the PhD is the new master's, you know, those kinds of things. I see that with students who who transfer into the arts. And, and the exciting thing about the humanities is that you can do many things with a humanities degree. The scariest fuck thing about the humanities degree is that you have there was no one solo. My English degree happened to lead me to journalism, but there was many things. I mean, when I chose to go out of education, I looked at sport and rec management. That was going to take three more years, and I'd already been at uni for three more years. I was like, mm, I'm okay, thank you. I looked at something else. I can't remember. Maybe it was a theater degree. I ended up just going and doing that as a master's, silly me. But the um, English was English got picked because it was the one that I had the most credits for. And I was already doing journalism and things like that. And that transition was really hard. And because we don't see those transferable skills. Uh, now, in a North American context, I would argue it's a lot easier than like a British context where you've been thinking about what you were going to do and the tests that you took at A level decide where you're going to go and what you're going to do. And you might as well just restart your whole degree. And it's not quite as general an education as. And there's pros and cons, of course. Um, If my British side of the family listen to this, I'm sure they can they can heckle me about how that's a better system. But I think like within I was going to say within crippledom, I'll just say it within crippledom. There is there's just like you said, there's that added layer of complexity. And I think for me, it's really hard. It's been really hard to separate like out the capitalistic natures of running my own business, the you and I talk off air a lot, Andy, about like productivity and how challenging it can be to like give productivity advice that isn't toxic as all hell. And but also like, you know, balancing running a business with disability justice. Like if you look at those two things on paper, they're in a way they're they're opposed to each other. No, you're right. I mean, I think because one of the key tenets of disability justice is an anti-capitalist mindset. And for as great as that is, and as noble as a pursuit as that is, run into issues because we still live within such a hyper-capitalistic society that takes paper-valued currency to get anything, right? I mean, just to have water come out of our taps and to have electricity to light and heat our homes all costs money, despite the fact that those are all needs, right? Most even right? when like, the I Texas mean, power grid doesn't want to run for you. Yeah, exactly. Well, thankfully, our last ice storm that we just had it survived by some duct tape miracle. But uh, it's it's a hard thing when when you try to do this work or you try to do any work, and that work isn't valued at a level that provides you the means to live a life that is however you consider it to be well for you right and recognizing that different people have different standards yeah it isn't valued and also i I would argue like 
you know, I joked about my first gig being timekeeper of hockey at 11. That's as a baseball that's a pretty, So also a very yeah, American would, first job. <laughs> there you go. I would say that like that's for disabled folks. And certainly like if we look at the employment levels of intellectually and cognitively disabled folks who identify within that paradigm. I think, I think I, I've always argued this and I'm sure some workplace culture person, some HR person will tell me I'm wrong, but part of the issue is that we don't have, like I know para-athletes, I'm not going to name them, but I know para-athletes who got their first job at 35. Look at how much they've missed out on, not just because they're para-athletes, but because they didn't get the they didn't get the chance to fail like you do when you're 15, 16, 17, working, making dumb mistakes. You know, just, yeah. And yeah, no, no, yeah. I shouldn't use the word dumb. I mean, I, I didn't bad work mistakes. during that 16, 17 period. It's silly mistakes, yeah. Or or just you don't have the like they talk all the time about explaining away an employment gap. Well, how do you explain a 20-year employment gap? <laughs> Any aside from like ableism. Which, which is the person the biggest, across from you isn't going to understand. Yeah, which which asking about employment gaps is the biggest ableist piece ever. Is what does it matter? <laughs> and I think that's also something that is very hard for most people who aren't disabled to really understand. Like, it was hammered into me to work. Right. I think for whatever reason, I grew up in a small town. Midwest family, it's just sort of the mindset is you work. And that's like if you're rarely, I mean, hobbies are encouraged. I shouldn't say that they aren't. They certainly are. But you work and everything else comes after that. And so it was always really hard for me to to take breaks for that, sort of go the opposite way. And it wasn't necessarily, you know, you need to work hard so that you can afford all these things. The mindset is you need to work. Because that's what humans do, and you work. And it took a long time to sort of start to separate myself from that. But when, and I've had the privilege of having invisible or hidden disabilities, one that I have the choice on a form to self um, disclose or not. And I will admit, there are plenty of occasions where I will mark I do not care to respond because I know the statistics. And, you know, this is coming from somebody who, for all other intents and purposes, I have a PhD, I'm white, I'm a man, I have a lot of things going for me. And then I will still get to that part of a questionnaire in a job form and I'll, I'll, I don't want to disclose because I know. Did you click? Did you like you're in a tenure track appointment at the moment? That, that application, not a tenure application, but the, the original gig, did you check the box? No, I didn't. But I also didn't identify as disabled then either. Oh, okay. Fair so I, I, I knew I had some stuff going on, but at that point, I, I didn't identify as disabled. Uh, but no, I didn't. I clicked no on on this job form. And I mean, not that they can really do anything about it. Now I have a job and they're hopefully going to promote me. That's <laughs> knock on the fake wood desk I have here. But, you know, it's... It's a hard decision. And I, I think, you know, you, you brought up the Zoom piece and, and the work from home stuff, which I think was an immense benefit to a lot of disabled people who've been asking for that forever. And we've learned that we can work from home and we can still be quote unquote productive and we can be good 
workers for companies. But it's it seems to me that we're racing backward away from that type of accessibility, despite spending, you know, the better part of three years working out all of the kinks, right? Like, I mean, we've sat in Zoom calls, we've come to expect and, and we've had to change the culture of remote meetings because, yeah, somebody could walk in the door or a dog could bark or something could happen or just somebody's Wi-Fi is slow one day for whatever reason. And we've learned to be more flexible and accommodating as a baseline for everyone, disabled or not. But at least in my worlds, we seem to be going the opposite direction of keeping those changes that we've made for the better. Uh, and we've been going back, whatever that means, to the way it was before, for whatever reason, though I believe it's mostly, and this is me opinion, but mostly I think it's because for those in management who have particular management styles, find it really hard when not everybody's in the office that they can sort of oversee on the day-to-day. It's hard when people are in their own spaces and and potentially asynchronous, right? Because that's also kind of the benefit of a work-from-home situation is that if you wake up one morning and you're not completely feeling it, then, you know, you can spend an extra hour doing this stuff or self-care at home and then just maybe work an hour or two later in the day. Or you can break your day up, which I found is really helpful for me, into a couple hour chunks, right? I don't get sit down at my laptop and work for eight hours straight every day like I faked doing in the office when I had to go in, right? Nobody works for eight hours straight. Are you kidding me? But I work in two-hour bursts now. I sit down, I'll do two hours of work, then I'll get up and do stuff at home, take the dog out, eat lunch with my wife, who also has the benefit of being an, working at home as a professional artist. And we, we get to spread our day around. And that means I can go outside if it's really nice out or whatever else. And that is really going in the opposite direction. And I think trying to tie this all back right, to the idea of working for yourself as a form of survival, that really, I think, attributes to that, right? That, that inability to accommodate certain situations and scenarios in the workplace really forces a lot of disabled folks to have to go out on their own. And then you layer on top of that, that maybe they haven't had the experiences for whatever reason, the learning experiences you and I might have had as being, you know, child laborers. It was. I will point out. It was an honorarium position. I was not. No was Saskatchewan labor law was broken. Yeah, I was. I think I was fourteen, so they could legally pay me as long as I had parental parental permission. Which, of course, again, being from the Midwest, of course, I had parental permission. Tying it all back, I think we see working for yourself as almost a necessity because the accommodations aren't there to work in the workplace. The things that disabled folks may do prior to a work life may not prepare them adequately. And then there's also the other side of it where a lot of people just don't assume that a disabled person is competent in whatever you're asking them to do. And particularly when we're talking intellectual disabilities and cognitive impairments. 
Yeah, and I think just to close this off, and then we'll, we'll uh, shift over to the Paralympics. Switch yeah, yeah. Uh, I think part of it is, and I, I, I tread carefully. I roll carefully. I don't know how to make a crypt joke out of this, but it leaves people that are not entrepreneurial minded or don't ever want to run their own business or can't because like, I'm not sure I could do this work if I lived on your side of the border in the way that I do because healthcare costs, like there are, there are a bunch of things that, that make it possible for me to do this, but there are people like, you know, as much as we create our own, so many of us create our own lane. There are a lot of disabled people that really don't want to be running their own business. They don't have an aptitude for it. They're not interested in it. They would much prefer to be in an office assigned things. And and it leaves those people in a really shitty space that I think some of the entrepreneurial minded people, disabled or not, can't conceive of their own little bubble of founders and business minded people. I sometimes have to drag myself out of that bubble and remind myself that I have always been the person that wants to do something, wants to lead something, even when I'm an employee, like wants to be the lead on the project, wants to be the one that has to make these decisions. Oftentimes, in my growing up, it was a split. I live in the prairies, which has some similarities to the Midwest, in that there are disabled people that I met who you just met and you went, right, if you weren't disabled, you would be a physical laborer of some description. But you are in a wheelchair, so you are stuck <laughs> in this paradigm where what you want to do, what you are surrounded by, is not something that you can do. And and I'm not sure that disability community holds space for that um, because we have trended so far towards because, again, this I th- and I would argue this is because it's biased towards the white wheelchair users, has trended so far towards intellectual work. That desk work, and I'm, by the way, I'm not saying that a carpenter isn't doing intellectual work because, of course, they are. What I'm saying, what I'm saying is that that we've trended so far towards the 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 white collar, the the Cal Newport would call it knowledge work, right? This very like your your operative mode is not a work site water cooler conversation; it is a Slack database. That left behind so many people who, you know, I would argue that, and I don't know this for sure, this is me definitely talking out of my ass, that the accessible levels that we talk about that have been created in very problematic ways, but have been created at the university level, are less prevalent at the technical college level, because we don't have that many, especially from a wheelchair user perspective. I think I know one wheelchair-using carpenter. I don't know that I know a wheelchair-using electrician. If they do have that aptitude, not saying this because our, 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 the guest that I interviewed is an engineer, <laughs> but they do tend to go towards the, the stuff that is rooted in that blue-collar work, but happens to have that sort of intellectual desk job add-on. Andy, you wanted to talk about the announcement of the sports that have been accepted into the program for LA 2028 and the other sports that are on the maybe included list. You want to tell me about that? Yes. So for those uninitiated, 
the Paralympics um, in 2028 will be in LA. And with, as with all Olympic Paralympic games, when um, cities put in their bids, there's also bidding for potential new sports to be included. It doesn't happen as often at the Olympic level, mostly because they've got a lot of sports and those sports have been pretty stable. But we've seen the addition of climbing and surfing to the Olympic Games. And usually when that happens, there's sort of a parallel para side added to it. Although not often, mostly because there's not that many para sports, or at least there haven't been historically. We've got the option to add... Paralympic climbing and parasurfing, which most likely will occur, given that they are in the Olympic Games. There were 33 sports that were put forward ult- ultimately, including CP football, um, para dance sport, power chair football, sailing, world para volleyball, put forward sit volleyball, as well as a beach para volleyball, which... Um, I think you may have mentioned last time we chatted, John, who the hell would want to sit in sand and play? Um, I'm sure somebody would. Oh, I was going to say, the, the wrinkle of this for, for maybe people who aren't initiated into parasport is that, um, is that you have the sports. You then have the disciplines, uh, which often means classifications, um, which can be a challenge. And like you said, the the wrinkle is always that uh, the Paralympic Games has one or two sports. The example usually given during the summer is goalball. It doesn't really have an equivalent. And then you have sports like wheelchair. Yeah. And then you have wheelchair rugby, which, you know, only has its name because it's uh, because it's murder ball isn't palatable to sponsors. <laughs> Correct. At least that's what the documentary tells us, right? The one piece that is, of course, interesting to look at is now that we've got things that are starting to be settled for the Paralympic Games. I found very quickly uh, an article about how the Paralympic and Olympic Games are set to provide, quote unquote, inspiring coverage. And it's We'll, we'll, of course, talk more about it uh, as the Paris 2024 Olymp- Olympic and Paralympic Games come up. But the idea of inspiration, I know we've already chatted about on the podcast in terms of inspiration porn and how sport is, can be inspirational, but depending on how we frame that and who we frame that for can be an issue. And I'm really hoping that some of these new sports like paraclimbing and parasurfing are included um, because I think it gives us an example of sport that isn't tied so heavily to professional sports and um, the idea of elitism in sport, right? I think climbing and surfing to a certain degree is still a sport that most anybody can get involved in, right? Um, I mean, most people try surfing on a vacation because you can rent a surfboard. Climbing, a lot of places now have their own climbing gyms, uh, which are affordable and accessible. And I think we're learning how 
sport that isn't designed around a team base or isn't necessarily designed around the idea of scoring, right? Putting a ball in a net or in a basket that we typically consider sport, that we have these sports that are or could be considered hobbies, lifetime activities, right? These just happen to be groups of folks that excel to a very, very high level in those particular areas. Um, but like the average person can still go out and do those and participate in them. And for me, that does bring back an exciting piece of the Olympics and Paralympics is, is the idea of amateur sport in these games, right? And I, and I know there's lots of discussion that go back and forth about this. In my mind, the Olympics typically is, is the pinnacle, right, of amateur sport. People who typically aren't paid to be an athlete, though that shifted over the years, we still see it with para sports specifically, right? As we just talked about, most para athletes aren't getting huge contracts. Most don't have huge sponsorship deals. Most work and train at the same time. And I think with the addition of these new sports, gives you a different lens to look at the Olympics again, for me, at least. And maybe some others feel this way too. It's like, I climb and I have surfed. I wouldn't say I'm a surfer, but I try. And I know people who, who I were a podcast, right? So people can't see me. I, I find myself to be a generally fit, able-bodied person and I climb, but I go to the gym and I see people with all different body types, right? And even those with physical disabilities that may struggle to take part in other sports, particularly sports that may be integrated with non-physical impairments, right? You don't often see that. And I, for me, at least, and again, I'm biased, but climbing is kind of one of those spaces where people with different body types, different needs can engage in the same place and with the same route, but be able to do it differently. And the sport has the flexibility baked in that that's encouraged, right? Like the challenge for parasport is, and, and Lisa and I get into it a bit during the interview, is that if you took basketball off of the Olympic program, the Olympic program, not the Paralympic program, the sport would still exist. Golf existed for how many hundred, you know, a hundred plus years once it was taken off the, the Olympic program in the early 20th century. If you took a lot of these parasports off of this program, the funding would just evaporate. Basketball would probably be able to survive it. I would argue that track would be able to survive it. It's pretty much a toss-up with the summer sports after that. I think sledge hockey would probably survive it. Uh, rugby might because it's always been rough and tumble anyway, and they're they're a newer addition on the scale of things. But it would decimate these sports. And on the flip side of that, then being included is the vacuum, or not the vacuum, the um, the vector is the word I was looking for, or that sports expansion, because that's when sponsors get involved. It's very hard to fund a sport that doesn't have the draw of the Paralympics. Um, and, I mean, we see the vast disparity between the number of sports, and this is true at the Olympic level too, the number of sports contested at the Winter Paralympics versus Summer. Funny enough that cripples want to be at a bunch of sunny sports. Uh, shock, surprise. 
Yeah, there isn't too many uh, CPs competing in the Winter Olympics. Well, not 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 uh, in wheelchair At basketball. Least not not, lo- not lo- yeah. uh, like if I was going to use the uh, the wheelchair basketball or wheelchair rugby term. Certainly not low class CPs. I would argue um, CP is such a spectrum that you know there's there's probably a ton. You know, there there'll be a lot of hemis, for example, that probably hemiplegics that probably. Well, I'm just thinking of the sports, right? I mean, we Paralympic summer has what 22 sports. That's what the, I think the list said. The Winter Olympics is what, like six, five or six? I mean, I mean, there's certainly one of those is downhill skiing, which has like in itself multiple layers. Like there's blind downhill, there's amputees, there's paralyzed. My favorite one that sounds like a misnomer is blind biathlon. Um, They're shooting with a laser, I believe. So like, let's not give non-disabled or people who aren't involved in Paris for the wrong idea. Yeah, I mean, we see this like at Canada Games. There's a big junior competition here. Wheelchair basketball is one of the few, one of the para sports involved. Wheelchair basketball is put in the summer program, uh, and I don't actually know if that's for promotional reasons. If it's because that's when the season is, it's actually put in the Winter Games, so it's in February as opposed to in June or summer months. Anyway, um, yeah, I think that it's going to be really interesting to see. If those sports are included or, you know, increasingly how those sports expand. I mean, there have been many discussions about wheelchair basketball has put forward a number of arguments towards um, a three on three has taken increased prominence over the last 10, 15 years. Uh, 15 might be a stretch. Certainly 10. Right. And, And is that a discipline that they want to build? There have been certain parts of the world where wheelchair rugby competed by paras is a thing, as opposed to just quads, um, which as a quad is a bit of a scary prospect from a from a safety perspective. <laughs> um, it's a whole different type of game, I think, at that point. Yeah, it, it's a yeah, it's a different game. If you put an amputee soccer player against a blind soccer player against CP five aside against a para chair, they're all technically soccer. <laughs> But uh, the game changes, really, it does. But but the game radically changes as much as games change, like swimming, for example, between classifications. Um, yeah, and uh, I think all roads lead to money. It does. I, I'd yeah. be interested. Yeah, I did a little bit of reporting for Five Thirty Eight. When I say a little bit, I mean one story about how medals are tied to funding, uh, and what that actually means. There's a great CBC piece, Devin Haru did a piece uh i'm not just shouting out saskatchewan journalists although he applies his trade not in saskatchewan anymore uh though i i i do have a perhaps a bias towards people i'm a fan of locally did a piece about that that split um but but really you know it's going to be interesting to see these sports grow and especially as as rugby grows because rugby doesn't really have a a comparison i would argue in the same way the goalball doesn't have a comparison um, it will be interesting to see how these bocce has a comparison, but it's not, you know, it's not on the Olympic program. Uh, so, yeah, how this funding all splits out is often a topic of conversation that I'm excited to see it grow past the insider conversations. And and this is too much of a topic. Maybe we'll get into it for the next podcast. But it's also interesting. We're seeing, you know, it's February 10th as we record this. We're seeing conversations about boycott 
very little. It's all Olympic, 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 Olympic. The BBC put out a story where there was one line dedicated to the Paralympics. Paralympics got into a position where when the war broke out, athletes were already there, which was a bit awkward. Um, but it'll be interesting to see because the IPC likes to parrot the IOC position that the Olympics aren't political, but disability is political, which is sort of the foundation of this podcast. Yeah. And that whole thing. I mean, it's whole bullshit. The Olympics are political. They've always been political. Always. We, I mean, we're going to have to spend another topic about or another podcast talking about how international sport is political. But I think you're right. It's seeing with the Olympics, Paralympics, they've, for me, they've, with all their issues, they do often provide a platform for sport that may never have happened otherwise. And when, in particular, when we talk about parasport, like how many people accidentally turn on goalball and find out it's actually a sport that's fast paced and they really enjoy watching it? Like, I mean, I can count so many times where I've just stumbled onto an Olympic game or Paralympic game and had no other preconceived notions about the sport and then found out this is really fun and super enjoyable. And so we'll, we'll have to see what comes about in 28 and, and certainly with the upcoming Paralympic Games with all the world still a mess. Uh, but yeah. All right. When we come back, you will hear John's interview. So stick around. Welcome back to Disability Movement, etc. I'm here with Lisa Franks, a former Paralympian, current athlete about North America. <laughs> and uh, we're here to talk about parasport, social movements, getting people into parasport, and whatever else we get up to. How are you today, Lisa? I am doing very, very well. I cannot complain at all right now. Uh, for, for listeners, I'm in my office in Saskatoon, and Lisa is on a beach. So one of us has it better than the other one, I think, right now. So we'll start with the the surfing stuff a little bit, I guess. Can you tell me a little bit about, you know, I, I know about your uh, your track career, obvious accomplishments there. And I got to witness quite a bit of your basketball career. Um as as the rookie on the bench but can you tell me a little bit about your current phase of your athletic career <laughs> my current phase i am discovering new sports long story short i went after my basketball career I had many years of chronic pain from an injury in basketball and what i learned very late into that period of chronic pain was that movement and particularly movement outdoors really, really helped with my coping with the pain and yeah, made it a lot more bearable. So I started taking up sports recreationally, such as kayaking, and I got really involved in mountain biking. And, and then I followed a friend down to California and I tried surfing. And that was the only thing in life that has scared me. <laughs> and I've jumped out of planes, I've gone skydiving, I've gone paragliding, I live in a van solo on the road, and surfing scared me, and so I had to come back and try to be more comfortable with it. So first time surfing was in 2017, and then a little bit in 2019, I tried it a handful of times, and then the winter of 21 and 22, and then this winter now, I've really just committed to getting as much time I can in the water. And 
that's where I'm at right now. So I'm in California living in my van and trying to surf as much as possible. Can you tell me a little bit about what what scared you about surfing as somebody who has, um, you know, multiple Paralympic medals under their belt? Yeah, so I would, the type of surfing I do is on something called a wave ski. So it's, if you picture maybe a sit on top kayak, um, that's what it's like. And then I have a paddle. But the big difference is I'm actually strapped to the board. So the first wave I ever caught, I'm riding this wave and then now, okay, I'm riding, I'm getting close to shore. Now what do I do? And I just fell. And I had practiced unstrapping before, but when you are in the water and waves are crashing on top of you, it's a very different experience. And so I was underwater way longer than I was comfortable <laughs> being underwater and fumbling, trying to get the strap and starting to panic and finally did get unstrapped. But that scared me just being underwater so long. And then when I did finally get to the surface, waves were just crashing on top of me. And I'm a prairie girl. I've never really <laughs> been in the ocean i didn't understand tides i didn't understand sets and i was right in like they call it the impact zone where it's you don't want to be caught in that zone and uh, and so yeah it was scary because i just ocean is very very powerful and that was kind of the first time i'd really felt the impact it has and and yeah it was just has like i said so little knowledge of waves in the ocean and so i think uh i just yeah that that, that was the fearful part do you have any fear like in any i mean i'm aware that you know a, a track to a basketball court there's no water involved but did you have any fear during that shift um i would say maybe always in the back of your mind it's like oh what if i'm in that critical point in a game or something and it comes down to me and i miss that shot or something you know that's always something that's sort of there but it's more of a critical fear of yourself instead of a oh i might die at this point right. here right i've never asked you this question what what made you switch from from track and field to basketball um there are a few factors for sure i had probably set out i'd accomplished more than i'd ever imagined i could in track and at that point i was kind of just not motivated to train. I When I switched, I had seven world records and wasn't motivated to train, just wasn't enjoying it as much. And always there's a part of me that thinks, okay, am I good because of my athleticism, my commitment to the sport, or am I good because I'm sort of in the right classification with my amount of function that was always in the back of my mind. And with wheelchair basketball, I knew I was at the very, very bottom of a classification system, I, I think one of a few quads that actually played internationally. And so I knew that, yeah, if, if I can go and I can make Team Canada in wheelchair basketball, that that's because I'm skilled athletically and using, you know, the intellect. And it's not just that I have a lot of function and I'm getting by that, right? shifting radically away from, from that for a second you know you've been doing a lot of this mountain bike work and and getting a hold of and getting a hold of one and and inviting anybody and everybody that will try it seems and i say that complimentary way um can you tell me a little bit about that that shifting into that role of promoting you know both surfing and, and mountain biking two of the sports that we 
maybe don't think about as much when we talk about Parasport? Yeah, so that has been a struggle because really within Saskatchewan, it hasn't been accepted as a sport. I've had trouble getting any funding. And so, um, you know, that aside, I think I, I just discovered the love of being outdoors and being able to access places on a mountain bike that your mobility device just can't get you. And just, yeah, the first time I was on a ride and I was by myself, I was not in cell service. I was in this amazing forest and just, I couldn't imagine i couldn't put into words how much i had missed that because growing up that's what we did as a family and so to have access to that again i just want to share it with people it's not even necessarily about the sport of mountain biking but it's a lot of just where you can go with it and some of the things you can see and i just want others to experience that that makes sense to me Speaking of getting to experience things in the most perhaps awkward segue of this afternoon, um, it's a pretty big choice, I, I would say, as a fellow low-class athlete quad, to uh, to pretty bold choice to um, you know adapt a traveling van and go south. Can you tell me a little bit about that process? Yeah, so I again coming out of chronic pain, I wanted to be outdoors as much as possible. You can't really do that in a wheelchair in Saskatchewan in the winter. So <laughs> my plan was to go somewhere warmer and do an extended period of time. So I took a leave of absence initially in 2019 from my job. And I built out my tiny little SUV with just a platform bed. And I had a cooler and a camp stove and came down here to try to surf. And... I just loved it. I loved that the majority of my day was spent outside and doing activities. So uh, it wasn't, that was definitely a challenge with the wheelchair and the tiny SUV. So I started to think bigger and had planner in building this van. And really, I wasn't intimidated by the process and the accessibility. I, I put a lot of thought into it and really was able to solve a lot of the problems that I thought, you know, would be kind of barriers to being able to do this lifestyle independently. But um and then it just kept getting bigger and bigger. And initially I just wanted a bed in the van that I didn't have to make up, you know, like move things around every night. And then it's like, well, let's add a fridge. Let's add a sink. Let's add heat. Like <laughs> and so it's evolved to this big van where I have the ability to travel with my surfboard, mountain bike, and it's just all fully accessible for me. And I'm out here living on the road at least six to eight months of the year. Who who did you have adapted? Um, well, I designed every detail, even down Joys to Joys the... of being an engineer, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I think I mean I I did the build in two phases. So I just did like an initial get flooring in, get a bed in, and then I spent some time in it just in my wheelchair, getting a feel of how much room I needed to maneuver. And the height I wanted, the cabinets and everything, and then finished it up a few months later with cabinetry and the, and the kitchen. And I just kind of got lucky finding somebody on Kijiji. That's kind of like Craigslist yeah. for comparison. And I was actually looking at buying a van that he had built, but it's just going to require too much modification, a lot of modification to make it accessible for me. So he offered that he could build it for me and he he had started something called true north camper vans in in calgary 
but then kind of went a separate way. It was just kind of DIYing it out of his shop. And so it worked out well. He was within my budget and, and it was in my time frame as well. So really, really turned out well. And you mentioned you took a, a leave of absence from the, from the engineering gig. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I'm assuming that has transitioned into that not being your job anymore. Uh, is that right? Well, no. So I took a three or four month leave of absence right before COVID. Right. Things had been slow. P- people were getting let go. And I thought, this is a great time to take a long trip. And when I come back, it'll be all, you know, busy and normal. And the opposite happened with COVID. Um, I did get back to work eventually, but I was, yeah, my leave of absence just kept getting extended into a temporary layoff. But then in 20, yeah, last year, earlier, like 2021, um, it was kind of given to me that, yes, we're still struggling to provide work for everybody. And you have an option of staying on with, you know, no benefits, lose your seniority, blah, 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 no guarantee of work every month and then or you could take a severance and we could go our separate ways and you could come back we get busy again so i ended up taking the severance it was just as my van came and so it kind of worked out serendipitously that i could transition into the van full-time and be mobile and in a way it really worked out yeah sounds like it can you remind me what type of engineer you are um, mechanical engineer. So I was working designing commercial buildings, doing the HVAC and the plumbing and fire protection design. Got it. I imagine that's pretty helpful when uh, when designing a van. Yeah, it's, I would say so. Maybe not even, you know, the particulars of what I do, but just the problem solving aspect of it, the critical thinking and, the, and being able to picture how everything would fit and, and work out. Was and and very your way around CAD and all the rest of it. I didn't even use CAD for the van. I actually oh, used a it was program a napkin. Called... <laughs> no, there's actually a program program called Van Space. But then oh, okay. I did kind of tape everything out within my van with just putting painter's tape on the floor where the cabinets would be. And yeah, what advice do you give? Would you give, or do you give others who might be looking? hopefully or optimistically at your lifestyle and wanting to follow suit? My advice would be to try it. You know, you don't have to necessarily dive in, but do something like I did as just a car camping or, or maybe you don't even want to be in a vehicle. Maybe you just want to be nomadic and moving around. You could go book Airbnbs or whatever all around. I would say just try it at a small scale and then you'll really find out what what things you do need and what things you don't need and what's a pri- what's a priority in your life and what you can give up and you just start figuring out if it'll work for you and if it's something you want to commit to you can just always keep going bigger and building on what you're doing so but i would definitely say yeah just try it and don't be afraid to try it in some manner have I you think, had uh, any uh former teammates reach out longingly at uh, at the uh I've had a couple of people say, oh, this is my dream. I want to do this someday. And yeah, it'd be, it'd be neat to see and no knock on them or, you know, knock on anybody. I hear that so often. It's just, oh, I want to do that, but I can't. And I was in the same position. I mean, I know for years I wanted to find a way to get away from winter in Saskatchewan. And it's just always 
I want to do it, but I can't. And it, I kind of just really needed a big push to be able to do that. Shifting, uh, shifting back over to the surfing, you know, we've seen the, the LA program come out and an announcement that, you know, if LA were to pick uh, surfing, it's, you know, it could happen. It's not off the table. I'm curious on your thoughts as somebody who is new to a sport that is in different, uh, a different stage of development than track and field and wheelchair basketball, which have both been, I think it's fair to say, mainstays of the Paralympic program. Yeah, I think it's exciting to see because, well, let's take a look at when I was injured in 96. It was like, okay, you can play rugby, you can do track, you can maybe do basketball. And those were kind of the options. Now it's you're injured. It's like, oh, do you want to go skiing? Do you want to surf? Do you want to sail? Do you want to mountain bike? There's just so much out there that you can do that, you know, you're not in this one little box of, you know, just this athlete that does it, that you can really pick and choose what suits you and what suits your personality. And yeah, I think it'd be so exciting to see it, especially, you know, LA has such a culture of surf. And if anybody would be on board, I think it would be that organizing committee. So I think it'd be great to see and maybe introduce people that never even considered surfing as an adaptive sport. Just, yeah, grow and grow the sport by having such a big showcase of it. Uh, Not to harp on it too much, but as somebody who's been to, uh, is it, was it three Paralympics? Correct. Yes. Sometimes my math fails me even when I have no. Um, did you, people in the sport come up to you for, for advice as somebody who has been to the big show, even if it wasn't a different sport? You know what? I don't even think people realize that I have that <laughs> under my belt. We don't talk about it. That was, seems so long ago to me. Um, I think, yeah, I'm like, it came up with, we had a new coaching staff this year and kind of came up. Like, oh yeah. She's been to a couple of Paralympics. And it's like, oh, how'd you do? Oh, seven medals. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's like. Yeah, I think that maybe gave them a little indicator that, yeah, even though I'm new in the sport, I have some athletic background. So, yeah, it's always challenging. I mean, obviously, I didn't go to anything nearly as cool as you did, uh, but it's always challenging. I remember showing up at my first rugby tournament and uh, wheelchair rugby was just all the things that I was good at in basketball and none of the things I was bad at, which was convenient. <laughs> uh, it's really helpful when you don't have to shoot the basketball, funnily enough. And yeah, just the, how, how, I mean, and for me, that was like two Canada games medals, big deal and some international trips, but you know, how, how you bring that up with people without coming across is like, you know, oh, you know, I know more than you, uh, it can be, it can be challenging, I would imagine. Um, what, uh, uh, disabled brain fog moment. So Andy will get to cut that part up. Lucky him. Um, you know, you spoke about the chronic pain, and and we don't have to go here if you don't want to. But what what are the types of things? How does the sport help you manage your chronic pain? Because you were talking about that. So with my my chronic pain, I have a severe shoulder injury that just kept getting worse and worse, and then scoliosis um, started getting worse because of the compensation. And I had four surgeries on that shoulder, and then. One of the big things that I have with the shoulder injury is a lot of spasticity and tone through my right, my whole right side gets locked up. And so 
yeah, even just sitting upright in a day can be exhausting because it's just always that gripping sensation. And so movement is the one thing that helps that it helps break that break that cycle. Gripping spasm. It gives me a bit more range of motion as things get as you know, muscles get warmed up and stretched and put into different positions. So that for me is yeah, my saving grace. I know with the chronic pain I'm in, I used to baby myself and say, Oh, you, you can't do that, you can't go do that, you're gonna hurt yourself. But it turned out to be the opposite. It's like almost the more aggressive and the more active I am, the better off the pain level is. I forget I forget what the original question was. <laughs> it's all good. I no, it's exactly that. I was curious because I think a lot of the times when especially people outside of sort of the parasport paradigm, like they hear the idea of, and I mean, including disabled people outside of parasport, you know, they hear the idea of physical activity to get better and they have a, or, or feel better. And they have a, you know, a visceral, re- a fair visceral reaction of like, oh, this is another person who thinks like yoga is going to cure my cerebral palsy or whatever. <laughs> right. right. Um, yeah. You know, I always think a long time along those lines of, uh, although I don't know how helpful the model was, the long-term athlete development plan that was drilled into at least my head at the Canadian national team level. And I'm curious your advice for disabled athletes who are looking to, I mean, the old titles were like train to train, train to compete, train to win or whatever, you know, loosely defined as, uh, are you on the junior national team? Are you on the national team? Or have we gotten rid of you? What would be your advice to those athletes who are looking to stay involved or and stay moving and stay involved in sport, but are not as, um, you know, they're not in sort of a centralized training environment or that, you know, that's not their only thing going? I would just say, I mean, it doesn't We're going to cut this little mumbly part out, right? Yeah, of course (laughs) Um, we are. It's hard to say because... I, it all depends on what sport you're in. I know for me, I consider myself active for life and I'm doing mountain biking and it's active for life. So I'm not even, you know, I've been to competitions, but that's not my main desire. And I even use an all electric bike because it's less impact on my body and it's going to give me more longevity. So I would say if you want to be active for life, you can put aside all your old habits of wanting to just go out and do the grind and push the limits and think about longevity because that's that's where I'm at is my body has to last me much longer in this life just for every day getting around. And so why do I want to go out and destroy it in a sport and just make things worse? So find find ways to be gentle to your body but still enjoy the sport would be my advice and if if you're not in you know a central training location that's that's almost better because it's just you you're not competing against somebody you're not out trying to prove yourself to somebody you can just concentrate on your on yourself and be gentler if you want to put it that way yeah do you think because we see with um you know, with the CPC doing, you know, an athlete transition program, game plan, and things like that. I forget what the American equivalent is. Do you think the the para sport movement at its sort of elite level is, you know, at the stage where it's supporting its former athletes to be active for life? 
Um, that has not been my experience. I've even just trying to run this adaptive mountain bike club. I just keep getting doors slammed in my face because we're not going to be bringing home any medals, at least not anytime soon. Mm-hmm. But it's such an important thing to be involved in. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, I can only comment on my experience, but I've definitely felt that once you're not producing medals, support drastically gets reduced uh, so that's pretty much all i want to say with that fair enough so it's like just you know reflect it back to you make sure that that i'm clear and then you know hopefully hopefully readers are or listeners are along for the ride that that the for you the parasport movement hasn't sort of got beyond what you know who who can get us medals and who can bring our country acclaim and it's far more focused on that than you know, your, your local sports club or recreation levels. Like, I mean, you know, spending my entire athletic career living in Saskatchewan, certainly I think it's fair to say there was a feeling that, you know, our, our, the, uh, you know, where Erica or, or Nick to Erica Gavel and Nick Gonshin, just to name drop two people, um, you know, where they were going to go was far more interesting to funders than say club 99 going to nationals. Like that there wasn't, I never really felt, and perhaps it's because I'm sitting at home being lazy, but that there was as much of a, a focus on the ability to go out and play recreationally. Yeah. And it's, I mean, there's obviously the argument of, you know, funding gets poured into a sport when you bring a medal. So it's the self-fulfilling prophecy. It's like, okay, we get more medals, we get more funding, we get more medals, we get more funding. And, uh, it's just tough that there's nobody or there's nothing out there that's really, I find, supporting those, those I guess, outlier sports or, you know, something that is benefiting people in their lives, but not with the medal tally. What's what's the funding, forgive my ignorance, but what's the funding sort of ecology or environment for surfing at the moment? Uh, it's all self-funded right now. Actually, I think they paid, Team Canada paid the registration fee for myself at Worlds. So I was at Worlds in December. Um, and and we where had were Worlds? Can you remind me? They're in Pismo Beach, California. Um, and we had coaching staff that was there. I believe they, you know, their expenses and everything were funded. But I think that will drastically change if it does become a Paralympic sport. I imagine karting and travel and training camps would happen. and. Definitely would uh, change the atmosphere of training right now. It made me think of something, which is I wonder who has the record for the longest gap between carding. Oh, I wouldn't even know where to. I to, have no idea. Yeah, I don't know. Missy Thomas, maybe? Maybe. There's got to be like somebody who trained from like was on some national team from like 19 to 21 and then realized at like 38 that they wanted to go back. Well, yeah, that would be Missy Thomas. She was stand-up Canadian national team in her late teens and then 40 switched to wheelchair basketball, something like that. Yeah, oh, I hadn't thought of that, the that jumping from um, yeah. jumping from that to that. Cool. Well, thanks so much for your time, Lisa. We'll end on this. Where can people find you to follow along on, on your journey and, and find out more about uh, um I was about to say skiing. No, that's not sport. Surfing and uh, the uh, the mountain biking stuff. 
So if you want to follow along the, the Mountain Bike Club, we are on Facebook and as well as Instagram. It's the Saskatchewan Adaptive Mountain Bike Club. If you want to follow my van life journey, probably Instagram is the best. It's keeping it wheel 306. And yeah, I'm not posting as much these days because I feel like I'm just rubbing in people's faces that I'm in somewhere warm. So I try not to be that type of person, but yeah, something cool. Yeah. Do you? <laughs> I hope so. But yeah, if something cool is going on, I'll, I'll throw it up there on Instagram. And John, we're back. Yeah, um, we are let's back. Do, let's do our Crip of the Week. What do you got? So at the risk of being the person that promotes his friends on the podcast, uh, I wanted to shout out a friend and I guess you could say theater colleague, uh, Madeline Little, who has been nominated for her work for a Matilda Award, which is an award for in the Australian theater ecology and I shout her out partially because her work and and the conversations happening in the Australian uh, theater ecology around accessibility, which she's, I would say, a key part of, um, are are really informed the way that I I look at access in theater. For example, conversations about how Auslan Australian Sign Language can be integrated rather than being that typical, oh, the interpreter is in whatever space the tech managed to find for them five minutes before the performance and, and how that can that can inform work. So kudos. Awesome. Awesome. I decided to go in line with some of our conversations from earlier. In Parasport, I decided that my Crip of the Week this week is the U.S. blind football team, which got their first uh, bid and will be participating uh, as a member of the U.S. Paralympics in 2028 in L.A. So good for them. This is the first year they've been around as a team. And so they got their Paralympic birth coming up, which is really exciting. And as an American, I'm rooting that they will also win the medal. So we'll see what happens. But that's it for today. John, as always, wonderful conversation. And we'll see all y'all in a couple of weeks. Stay safe, stay warm. See you, John. Have fun. <laughs> all right, bye. Disability Movement Etc. is a Blank Hour production. You can find out more about what we're doing, including past episodes, show notes, and transcripts at blankowl.com. The music for this episode was composed by Adrian Doc Blust. If you'd like to support our efforts with Blank Owl, head over to support.blankowl.com. Hope you all join us next time. <laughs>